Welcome to the St. Andrew's Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. You can connect with us online at www.gosaintandrew.com. Beloved, our reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Luke. Written either in the early 60s of the first century or possibly around 80 CE, Luke is part of a two-volume work, Luke and Acts, which deals with the beginnings of Christianity. There is a clear and consistent belief among scholars that the writer of this gospel and Acts was Luke, a doctor and companion of Paul who is mentioned several times in Paul's New Testament letters. The main theme of Luke's account is the gospel of salvation for all people, with a special emphasis on the poor, marginalized, and oppressed. For Luke, the salvation event includes both the ministry of Jesus and the proclamation of salvation by the church. More than any other gospel account, Luke teaches the need for the rich to share with the poor and shows how this ideal found expression in the Jerusalem church. In our reading this morning, after traveling throughout the region of Galilee, preaching and teaching, we find Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth. Let us turn now and hear about what happens next. A reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 22 of the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. February 17th, in the year 1600, this was the date when after a lengthy and a rather public trial, the divorce became final. This marriage had lasted for centuries. It, it had been a beautiful relationship, but at times a, a rocky one, especially near the end, which often happens in these kind of breakups. There were countless moments along the way when it seemed like this marriage simply wouldn't survive another day, but the two of them, they always seemed to work it out. Every day was this dance of compromise and cooperation, of give and take, uh, arguments and, 
embraces, a lot like our human relationships. But somehow, they just always seem to work it out. It was bumpy, but it was beautiful until the day it all seemed to unravel. And that's when it got a little ugly. February 17th in the year 1600. That was the day of the great divorce. The day the marriage between religion and science hit the rocks. Both sides, you could say, uh, lawyered up, called it quits, cashed out, and went their separate ways. Okay, now I, I might be wrong about the date here. I'm ballparking it, but on February 17th, in the year 1600, the Italian scientist and philosopher Giordano Bruno was convicted of heresy and sentenced to death after a seven-year-long trial. Now, peering through his telescope, Bruno became convinced that um, Copernicus, who came before him, was actually right, that the earth really did rotate around the sun and not the other way around, as the Bible suggests. The earth, in other words, was not the center of the universe, or as people thought, the apple of God's eye. In fact, Bruno said, the universe wasn't even alone. Earth was just one planet among an infinite number of planets in a, in a galaxy among an infinite number of galaxies, what Bruno called a plurality of worlds. Well, the church suddenly had a public relations nightmare on its hands. Uh, you know, Bruno's teachings might be true, but these teachings couldn't be reconciled with the Bible and with Christian doctrine. So they got together. How will we silence Bruno? Have you ever heard of the uh, Grand Inquisition? Uh, it, it was like the OJ trial of the Middle Ages, except in Bruno's case, the glove fit. Bruno, Bruno refused to renounce what he knew was scientifically true. He also added a few choice words about his views on the uh, doctrine of the Virgin Mary. That didn't help his case at all. When Bruno was finally convicted of heresy, he was sentenced to death. He told his judges this, perhaps you pronounce this judgment against me with greater fear than I receive it. That didn't help either. <laughs> they dragged him out and they burned him at the stake. 33 years later in Rome, the astronomer and physicist Galileo Galilei also stood by trial before the Grand Inquisition. For Galileo, this heliocentric universe idea was a truth that could no longer be denied or silenced. It was irrefutable. But Galileo, also facing charges of heresy and possible death, ultimately recanted his teachings. And of course, knowing how badly it went for Bruno, who could blame him? And so under oath, Galileo denied that the earth moves around the sun, even as he muttered under his breath, and yet it moves. Galileo was found guilty of heresy. He was sentenced to house arrest 
where perhaps you knew this, he spent the rest of his remarkable life. This divorce between faith and science resulted in a lot of collateral damage. People figured if faith and science could no longer coexist in the same house, then neither could the physical and the metaphysical. Matter and spirit, earth and heaven, body and soul, reason and belief, the Bible and the microscope, all of these were deemed irreconcilable. And so ever since, Christianity has been almost solely preoccupied with only spiritual and metaphysical things. Uh, The church has said, you know, look, let science uh, and reason, let them deal with all the worldly, earthly matters, the trivial problems of this mortal life. We Christians, we're going to deal with uh, more important things like heaven, eternity, and the weightiest of all matters, salvation. Now, there's a a cringe-worthy word, salvation. It is so religiously loaded. In the Scriptures, it has a a number of of, of different meanings, a redemption, deliverance, rescue. But in modern Christianity, especially, salvation has taken on individualistic connotations. For some, in wonderful ways, it signifies this moment of coming to faith in Christ when we experience the wonderful assurance that God forgives us and loves us unconditionally. But for others, that word salvation, it conjures up images of sweaty preachers and big tents doing altar calls and laying hands on people. Um, It calls to mind those awkward moments, maybe you've had them, when somebody in a supermarket parking lot interrupts you and says, excuse me, uh, are you saved? I'm just getting my groceries, okay? Uh, If you were to die today, would you know that you would go to heaven? That gets a little awkward. Some people, when they hear the word salvation, they think of, uh, I think, all 16 of those uh, Christian novels, the Left Behind series, about the so-called end times, in which the so-called true believers are so-called raptured to heaven and all the rest of us are left in our misery and chaos in the sinful world. It's because of some of these really bizarre connotations that more and more people, when they hear the word salvation, want nothing to do with organized Christianity because they struggle with this false but very popular notion that the next life is more important than the one we're living today. That, uh, that heaven, which we cannot see, is more important to God than earth, which we can see. And some people, they can't reconcile that kind of God with the God that they've experienced in their real lives. And they struggle to live in, in this dual reality where spirit and matter, soul and body, heaven and earth all have to be separated. And they sense that maybe this is all connected after all. I just don't have the language to describe it. Is that you? We did a survey recently this last week on the questions of salvation. I want to lift up a few really, I think, revealing statistics. We asked, 
I believe heaven is more important to God than what happens on earth. 74% of you disagreed somewhat or strongly. I believe heaven is more important to God than what happens on earth. 80% of you disagreed somewhat or strongly. I believe salvation, however I define it personally, can be experienced in this life. 91% of you agreed strongly or somewhat. We're feeling something. It's not just about what happens up there, but what about down here? If you've ever been disillusioned by this, what we call a dualism, that suggests that God only really cares about the salvation of your souls, I want to introduce you to a God in the Bible who not only rejects that dualism, but is constantly working to bridge that gap and to bring these seemingly opposites together, heaven and earth, body and soul. This God cares deeply, even you might say ultimately, about very earthly things. You, me, people, communities, creation, the universe itself. We meet this God in the Gospels. He has a name. He goes by Jesus. But despite what you may have heard about him, he doesn't walk around with some saintly, heavenly halo on his head as if he were, as some would say, not of this world. He didn't look like God, at least not in the sense of like, oh wow, there, look, there's God. He didn't look like that. Jesus was the embodiment of heaven and earth, of divine and human substance, all brought together in one. As a human then, that means that he cared very deeply about human things, human problems, human relationships, human bodies, human suffering, uh, human joy, human flourishing, human freedom. But as divine, he also cared deeply about spiritual things, prayer, Sabbath rest, integrity, beauty, honesty, generosity. Um, As he said once, uh, how not to uh, gain the whole world but lose your soul. Jesus cared deeply about spiritual things too, along with human things. Only he never once distinguished between the two. He never once said that spiritual things are more important than earthly or human things. For Jesus, everything was spiritual. Because God who breathed God's breath into all creation at the start of all this was in all of creation. Everything was holy and spiritual. But ever since those days of Galileo and Bruno, we've been told that human things and spiritual things are different things. And because God cares more about the heavenly spiritual things, so should we. But we have been misled. Everything is spiritual. And Jesus says so in the very first sermon he ever preached that you heard read just moments ago. I said a few weeks ago, pay attention to first things. First impressions, first words, first actions. You, you can tell a lot about a person through the first things they do or say. Um, one day, after Jesus moved out of his parents' basement, he, um, he went into the wilderness and uh, 
had some fun times out there. He came back from the wilderness, uh, back home to Nazareth. Uh, he is somewhere in his early 30s, uh, and he stops by the synagogue on the Sabbath. And according to Luke, he is, quote, full of the Holy Spirit. And the attendant there that day sees that he's, you know, full of the Spirit. And, and that's probably why he gives Jesus the opportunity, you should preach, you're, you're full of the Spirit. And so he hands Jesus the Isaiah scroll. And Jesus unrolls this big scroll and goes to chapter 61, reads these words, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to release the oppressed, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. That sounds like a very preachy kind of thing to do and say, but everybody there that day knows this passage well because it's the prophecy that speaks of the one who is Messiah, who is to come. As Jesus reads it, the people are all nodding their heads. They know this, and they're so proud of Jesus. Oh, it's Mary and Joe's boy. He's back. I remember when he was on his scooter rolling around in the cul-de-sac, and here he is now. He's a real grown-up preacher. But then Jesus stops reading, and he rolls up the scroll and says, Today, this scripture is being fulfilled as you hear it. In other words, the one about whom I just spoke is me. I am Messiah. And in that moment, Jesus didn't just read from the scroll of Isaiah. He read from the scroll of his own life. This is what my life is all about. This is what I've come to do. Did you notice what's not on the Savior's to-do list? First, what's not on the Savior's to-do list is anything that seems remotely spiritual, at least according to modern categories. Jesus doesn't say, I am the Savior and I have come that you might receive me into your heart. This is not the first thing Jesus says. In fact, Jesus doesn't say that at all. He didn't say, I'm the Savior and I've come that you might have a personal relationship with me. Now, Jesus wants to have that personal, but he doesn't say it here. Did you hear what he did say? What he, what he put on the list, first and foremost? This is all very profoundly human stuff. Real world messy stuff. I've come, he says, to preach good news to the poor. And that is not poor in the spirit. He's speaking about the have-nots and the nobodies and the have-nothings. And he's come to bring good news to them that Things are about to get better. He says, I've come to proclaim release to the captives. He's not talking about those who are imprisoned by personal sin, although that could be included. What Jesus is talking about here are real people who are locked away in real prisons under the brutality and injustice of the Roman legal system. I've come to give recovery of sight to the blind. This is not now the amazing grace kind of... Uh, I once was blind, but now I see kind of blindness. This is really about people who literally physically cannot see and all those who suffer from some physical disability that has marked them as different and therefore as other than or untouchable. 
I've come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Jesus here is talking about those whose lives have been crushed and held down by systemic injustice. Those who are pulled over just because they look like Jews. You see, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, he says. He's talking about the Jubilee year. Every seven years, according to Hebrew law, all debts must be canceled so that you're not crippled by a lifetime of debt. Indentured servants in their seventh year of servitude have to be set free so that people aren't sentenced to a lifetime of slavery. Ancestral lands that were taken as collateral by lenders had to be given back to their original owners so that they're not condemned to a life of landlessness, which meant homelessness. Do you see how all these things are profoundly human? And do you see how different they are from what we've been told? When I was in college, I, I had a guy from Campus Crusade from Christ. He came and he knocked on my dorm room door as a freshman. I was already planning to be a pastor and I didn't want to tell him that because I just wanted to see how far this was going to go. And he began to preach to me about how sin separates me from God and that I needed to get over this chasm. And he took out this piece of paper. Maybe you've seen one of these. It's a diagram. It shows a big canyon. And on one side, is, it says me. On the other side, it says God. And in the middle is a cross that I have to walk across to get over to God. Uh, we call that a dualistic perspective. The separation between the human from the divine. You know, God is a little too holy to deal with the messy stuff, and so we got to cross this bridge. He said to me, thanks to the death of Jesus, we can make it over the chasm. You can too, and you can experience salvation. I didn't want to break the news to him because I already had this sense of who Jesus was even then, that Jesus had a different view of salvation and sin. And when he preached his first sermon, Let's be honest, his people were living under military occupation. Some of you have been to the Holy Land. The tables are turned, but life under occupation always looks the same. Always. The despair and seething anger beneath the surface of the Palestinians today, the ugliness and awfulness of living under occupation with tanks and gun towers, the the tear gas the inability to get beyond a wall to get your child the proper health care, the inability for young adults to to go to college outside of their walled-in community. It always leads to violence, to vengeance, to tear gas and tanks and bloodshed. His people of his day, they were tired of it. They were tired of of poverty and prisons, chains, submission. For Jesus' sin, it was more than personal disobedience. For Jesus' sin was poverty. It was oppression. It was slavery. These these are outcomes of, of disobedience to God, but don't separate the two, said Jesus. In his first sermon, this is what Jesus asks us. 
How can we be saved if there are whole parts of our lives, our relationships, our community, our world that are not transformed too? The word salvation, the root of the Latin word is salvus. It means well-being or wholeness, and it suggests that there's no salvation apart from the whole. Just as our bodies can't be healthy if our spirits are sick and vice versa, so too can our societies never be healthy. If there are people in our societies and our communities that are also oppressed and sick, hungry and hurting, Salvation is not simply personal. For Jesus, we are not saved until the entire universe is saved. If this is new to you, I I want you to think in terms of three awakenings when it comes to salvation. The first awakening comes when we discover that God loves us personally and unconditionally, impartially. When you say, I know I am God's beloved, And I have this assurance of grace in my life, and I begin to live with that grace. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? He he was a tax collector. He was a schmuck. No one loved him. But Jesus comes to his house. They break bread together. They have this conversation. And in that moment, Zacchaeus has this awakening. He feels God's love. And what does Jesus say? Zacchaeus, today salvation has come to your house. It's beautiful, but some Christians never get beyond this. I'm loved, they say I'm saved. But can I remind you that Jesus himself didn't stop there? If he had, Jesus never would have preached his first sermon. There would only be uh, two or three chapters of Luke and not a whole gospel. Jesus would have stayed at the river of his baptism where he heard the voice of God say, you are my beloved. We, like Jesus, have to leave the river to experience the second awakening when we discover that God actually loves everyone. The last, the least, the enemy, the adversary, even my crazy uncle, God loves everyone. And it's wonderful. And it's hard. Some Christians can't do this. It can be hard to accept that you are special, not so special. That God loves even people you like to hate. Remember the prophet Jonah who nearly lost his mind when the people of Nineveh repented and God had mercy on them? But when we make this awakening in our lives, it changes how we treat others. We forgive people. We give them a second chance. We we may even pray for our enemies. Or give them something to eat. Some Christians never get there. But if they do, they experience the third great awakening. When we orient our whole lives toward that love of God. This is what Jesus preached. It's what he embodied. A love that not only accepts others. But chooses to actively work to liberate them from personal destruction, from addiction, social injustice, oppression, poverty, from that vicious cycle of death and vengeance and bloodshed that Jesus came to save his people from. It's a love that sees the other, even the one you don't like, is worthy 
of laying your own life down for. So I ask you today, ask yourself this, how saved am I? Am I fully awake? Will Campbell, he was raised in poverty in the deep south of Mississippi. His own family ordained him at the age of 17 to be a Baptist preacher. Will Campbell went on to be this remarkable uh, force in the civil rights movement. In 1957, he was one of those four people who you might recall in that image uh, who uh, walked those nine students uh, into this Little Rock Central High School for integration. And when the hate mail became became, um, persistent from the white right, Campbell struggled with this feeling like he hated all those bigots as much as they hated him. And he came to see that it was wrong to believe that God hated all the same people he hated. And he realized that he'd become little more than what he called a doctrinaire social activist instead of a follower of Christ. And so he wrote about that great journey of orienting his life toward God's love for all people. He said, I came to understand the nature of tragedy, and one who understands the nature of tragedy can never take sides. And then he experienced that third awakening. He started sipping whiskey with the Ku Klux Klan. He officiated at their weddings and funerals. He befriended the Grand Dragon of North Carolina. He became known as the, quote, chaplain to the Klan. But he slowly won them over. And then something unexpected happened. The hate mail started coming in from the liberal left. But his answer, which he repeated a thousand times over, was always the same. If you're going to love one, you got to love them all. This is salvation. Bodies and souls, heaven and earth, spirit and matter, all daring to work together until every last one of us is saved. Three takeaways. There's a God in the Bible that many of us have never met. This God made every earthly matter unmistakably spiritual. When we orient our lives around God's love, we work with God to save the whole world. Amen.
Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. And if you'd like more information, go to www.gosaintandrew.com. See you next week.